everybody, hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Welch Report with me, Jean-Luc Welch. Make some noise and clap it up, get excited. Wherever you are, we are back with another action-packed, jam-packed episode for you today as we got a whole bunch of stuff to cover in the world with the uh, basketball and the world of boxing with the All-Star Weekend and Dunk Contest. Having a very lackluster performance outright, but for reasons that you may not have expected as to why it was so underwhelming. And also, Anthony Joshua defense Ngannou is happening on March 8th, about, well, two or three weeks out, and we got to give you the full breakdown on who exactly is going to win and why. Yes, we covered it earlier in the month, but now we're going into that was more of an overview, a preview. This time, we're going deep dive into what exactly the ramifications and the outcome of this fight will be. So without further ado, thank you for tuning in, thank you for listening, and please leave a like on the video, comment your thoughts and opinions, subscribe to the channel, and share the show with everybody that you know so we can build up this empire together. We are almost at a thousand subscribers. We're about at 900 right now. Good done got what 10 away from 900. We are on a roll with the community slowly or rather quickly, excuse me, <coughs> not slowly, <coughs> quickly building up and getting a name for us. Hey, this is getting good. It's getting good. Oh, yes, indeed. We're small, but we're becoming mighty very, very quickly. So, again, thank you for all the support. And without further ado, it's time to jump into the world of basketball as we got cover our first topics. Reaction to All-Star Weekend. That is right. And, man, when I tell you that this All-Star Weekend was, for lack of a better term, it was underwhelming. Like I said in the intro, very underwhelming, but why was it the case? We got to see the three-point shootout. We got to see dunk contest. We got to see the all-star game in and of itself, skills challenge. All of it on paper seemed like it should be something more spectacular. And then we get to the actual viewing experience, and it was just, it was blasé. Very blasé. Again, the most exciting part of the night was Steph versus Sabrina Inescu in that three-point shootout between the best shooter in the world in the NBA and the best shooter in the world in the WNBA. And they put on an absolute show. But beyond that, it was just, it was, it was, man, it was, what is going on? This is supposed to be a weekend of celebrating the game of basketball, giving the sport it's due diligence and love. Yes, you're not as competitive, but you are able to essentially a, a, a love letter to the game. Put the best of the best in the NBA, in the league, in one setting for an entire weekend, weekend and let them have fun. Let them just enjoy themselves. Let them do outrageous stuff that you don't get to see in normal day-to-day -day game operation when in the, during the NBA regular season. Give the, give the players and fans a chance to see the, the breadth of these of, of the players and their capabilities and their skill sets and their athleticism and their creativity. All of these things give us, the fans, a time to say, wow, oh my gosh, we can just strictly enjoy and be amazed by what we're seeing without having to always put everything in the context of what does this mean for the end of the regular season? Does this improve or, or diminish the opportunity to win the championship? All these other storylines and narratives all of it can be put to bed for at least a weekend and give us a chance to just thoroughly sit back and enjoy. But we consistently have had, constant after, was it, four years in a row, nearly, a time where we hate All-Star Weekend. We always have a complaint. It's always a concern. It's always a problem when it comes to All-Star Weekend. What is it that is messing it up? Well, could be that the players just don't care. And they've said it themselves. Again, Anthony Edwards went out on, in an interview and in All-Star Weekend and essentially said, hey, yeah, we don't care. This isn't really something of, it's just time to take a break. We're just trying to relax. We don't really care and, and competitively about the weekend. And other players may have had that sentiment as well. Maybe I just missed some quotes, some quotes, quotes, excuse me, my gosh, missed some quotes and tweets of other players' reactions. But what I didn't miss was that we still have players and legends going into the locker room before All Star, the All Star game, and telling him, like Larry Bird, like Julius Irving, like Andre Iguodala, not a legend, but hey, was respected amongst the players' union and players as a whole. All of them were telling him, hey, give you your all, be competitive, give the fans a legitimate show, and give a, an ode to the game that we love to play. And they still put out these abysmal, abysmal 
lackluster performances in terms of no real competitive nature. What does this all stem to? What needs to be fixed for each individual thing? Well, let's start with three-point shootout. That doesn't really need to be changed. It, what it was, for it was, in all honesty, the highlight of the night. The highlight of the entire weekend was a three-point shootout. Everybody going insane. No score was under 20. Dame went hot, won it, went back to back. Cat still showed he was still one of the best shooters in the league, one of the best big man shooters that we've ever seen, with him again performing phenomenally in the three-point competition. It was hotly contested. We had a four-way tie in the first half, or excuse me, in the first round that they had to do another shootout for. It was great. It was phenomenal. Skills challenge, it was just fun. You know, blase type of affair. Rising Star Challenge was more of a three, uh, what was it, three-on-three? Or five on five, I get exactly what it was. But that was, yeah, okay. We had some good spots there. Some stuff could be improved with some good spots there. No real major change. Again, I missed the skills challenge when it was big man versus small man going up and down the floor doing the various drills and whatnot. But hey, that's personal preference. Then it got to the dunk contest. The thing that was supposed to cap off and normally be the biggest event of the entire weekend only to the All-Star game. And again, we have a situation where everybody is complaining, and it was lackluster. But what was the real cause? Was it that the dunk contest sucked? No, it wasn't that the dunk contest sucked. And if we're being perfectly honest, for in terms of dunk-wise, we have been, quote-unquote, spoiled. That's been the excuse. But in actuality, it hasn't been the dunks that are not creative that have been made this dunk contest not appealing. It hasn't even been the lack of star power, and we will address that as well as to why many other stars aren't in the dunk contest that we want to see that can perform and produce big names. We'll get into that. But the biggest reason as to why that we are seeing such a, a stifling kind of standoff in terms of no improvement for the dunk contest specifically is the fact that there is no accountability for judging. It is not that Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine set the bar so high. No. Because again, Mac McClung, when he won a dunk contest, we were all incredibly impressed both times, last year and this year, with what he was able to do on the floor and with the creativity of his own dunks and the athleticism. And they weren't nowhere close to what he did with Aaron Gordon and or what Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine did against each other in 2016. Nor Aaron Gordon with what he attempted in the year after. Nor when he lost the third time uh, the year after that. Which he shouldn't. He should have won two out of those three. If we're being completely honest. But again, we'll touch on that on this segment. Strictly with what we saw performance-wise. McClung was great. Toppin's brother was phenomenal. Hawkins on the Miami Heat was in, was great. He was good. But it was the fact that it wasn't the dunks. It was the judging. The dunks and creativity are not the problem. We haven't done everything under the sun. We haven't been oversaturated. Y'all are just saying that because, we're being perfectly honest, we're letting social media blind you from what is actually the reality. We are seeing... Good dunks and good dunkers in the contest. It's the it's the fact of the matter is we are not having judges being accountable for how they score these things. That's the problem. The judging has been abysmal. The very reason why Aaron Gordon isn't isn't in the dunk contest again is because of judging. The very reason why this dunk dunk contest sucked this year was because of judging. The again. Yes, it's been competitors at the time, just an outright bad performance from all people on all nights. Understandable. That has happened. But it's always because of the judging. They don't know what they're seeing or they're skewed based on what they want to see. Instead of just objectively judging what is quality and what isn't. It, it makes no sense. It's ridiculous. Again, I'll go back to Zach Levine versus Aaron Gordon. When they did their dunk contest, most of their dunks were 50s. Absolutely. No problem with it. Problem is, when it gets it's what it should be, when you dunk in the next round and you advance, there needs to be an upping of expectation. 
and a stricter protocol on what should and should not be qualified as a great dunk versus a good dunk. A 50 versus a 49. It gets stricter. Final round, even stricter. That's what it should be. Mind you, dunking is what got me into the NBA. Seeing Julius Irving, again, hey, seeing this man dunk is what got me invested in basketball in the first place. My pop showed me him in the highlights. I was hooked ever since. That man caused me to go through hours, hours, exorbitant amount of hours. College level course hours from childhood on. Just looking at people dunk. Being enamored by the high flying spectacle of it all. Being able to see the peak of athleticism that the human body can do. I'm about dunking. That's been the, the foundation. My whole basketball journey. This is something I'm passionate about. Because I'm passionate, I'm so upset that we consistently have it backfire and have it be muddied by terrible decision-making on the part of the judges. We can get on competitors not being able to, to put on great displays. That's a different conversation. The bigger problem is the judging. And again, going back to what we were talking about, Aaron Gordon versus Zach Levine. Difficulty should have gotten up in terms of how hard it is to score a 50 as the rounds went on. But they both were doing great 50-type performances. Then we get into the last couple dunks. We get to Zach Levine, free throw line, phenomenal. Oh, my gosh. Aaron Gordon, actually, no, before that, excuse me. We get to a situation, Aaron Gordon does a 360 scoop with power off the mascot, first try, with the mascot spinning as well. 50, outright. Zach Levine does the same dunk, less creative, off his own controlled toss, not even as much power. It looked great, don't get me wrong. But it lacked the creativity and the, feroc the ferocity that Aaron Gordon's dunk was that he just did perform. He still got a 50. That shouldn't be. Aaron Gordon dunks under his legs in the final round. Something we had never seen before in the history of the NBA. And gets a 50. It should have been that you got to top that to score above him. Or to, to beat, you got to top that to continue. Because you can't get better than a 50, but you got to do something that was that is worth giving a 54 that is better than that. And that didn't win it. Instead, Zach Levine got another 50 for Duncan from the free throw line, which was impressive, don't get me wrong, but just because the athleticism was insane, the creativity coupled with the athleticism and verticality and still outright power on top of completing it the first time, like both of them were doing all night long. That has more weight than what Zach Levine was doing. Hence, that should have won. Next year, again, goes into a dunk off in the final round. Or, excuse me, two years later. Because Aaron Gordon was injured that one year. Dunk off in the final round. Derrick Jones Jr. versus Aaron Gordon. Derrick Jones Jr. does a, a East Bay over somebody front of the rim. Impressive, don't get me wrong. Aaron Gordon jumps over Taco Fall. Dog, talk. I believe he's taller than Victor Wimbledon. At that time, was the tallest player in the league outright. Seven foot six. Wimby seven five, seven four. Aaron Gordon dunked over him. First try. Two hands. Leapfrogged. Literally. And Dwayne Wade gives him a nine. Hence the meme that we all know. Do you see the problem? And he did it intentionally. You saw him do it intentionally. To be able to give his, not protege, but this fellow Heat member, Derrick Jones Jr., who was on the team at the time, the win. When it wasn't the win, it wasn't better. If anything, Derrick Jones Jr. did the same dunk between the legs all night long. It was enough to beat everybody else, but it wasn't enough to beat Aaron Gordon. Creativity and real impressive dunking is not rewarded. Toppin's brother. For, uh, jumping over his own brother first dunk for a reverse slam again since he turning his body while over his brother it was insane phenomenal though then does essentially East Bay 360 I believe wrong way finishing with two hands or maybe right way finishing with two hands either way 360 between the legs two handed finish on the second attempt phenomenal deserved a 49 Hawkins jumps over Shaq windmill power Push off, yeah, but still powerful. Vertically impressive. 
brother gets, what is it, 48, 47? Jalen Brown does a, a 360, or not 360, Jalen Brown does a windmill and gets a 49, nearly a 50 on his first. We didn't even t- catch it the first time because Karen Crew messed up on TNT. But still, it was a situation. His dunks were not impressive. They weren't. Compared to what everybody else was doing. Compared to everybody else. They were not impressive. And he moved on to the finals. With this, the dunk getting him to the finals was jumping over Kostinet and who was seated down and doing a trying to do D was it D Johnson but play on the Celtics his no look dunk when he didn't look after he dunked the ball looked at the rim all the rest of the way essentially did a a a, a lazy alley oop that you would do in practice with some. Some semblance of <coughs> quote unquote flair <coughs> oh, <excuse me. coughs> at the end, which was terrible. It's not quality, but that moved on all because he's an all star. He was getting 48s and 49s for dunks that should be 30s, 20s compared to what the, everybody else was doing. It's terrible. Nobody wants to compete because what's the point if I give effort and I should win, but I don't win? What's the point if I catch a Stanley when he faced off against Obi Toppin the year Obi Toppin won? Did an insane dunk. I believe faked between the legs. Oh no, jumped off the same leg, went under it, and dunked it, which is insane. If you know dunking, that is incredibly difficult. But he didn't make it out the first round. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. This is not how it's supposed to be judged. You got people literally. Dwayne Wade rigging judging. You have people like um, on on this very dunk contest this year doing absolutely ridiculous judging calls on dunks that should be bottom of the barrel, giving them 50s or near 50s, 49s, and people that are actually putting on quality dunks that could give us even better dunking later on in the rounds, you nix them. Because what? They're not all-stars? That's what happened in this dunk contest. It's not worth the risk if I put in all the effort and I'm legitimately doing good and I get beat. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the risk at all. And no, it's not the case when it comes to there's no stars in the dunk contest. It's not because LeBron didn't play and dunk in the dunk contest that we're now all of a sudden saying, oh man, nah, it ain't worth it. It's not that we don't have, it's not on the, his shoulders that we're seeing the result of what we're seeing now from Dunkers and from star players today. It's not. We, I know it's not. If he competed early on, it would have been great, phenomenal. But I've always said that LeBron has never been a dunk contest style dunker. In game dunking, he's one of the greatest dunkers ever. And he is one of the greatest dunkers of all time, period. But his bread and butter is in game. In game dunking, Sean Kemp, he put on a respectable performance when he was in the dunk contest, but he was better off as an in game dunker. That's where he really let his whole creativity and power shine. Because him dunking over somebody, through somebody, in traffic, all that stuff, wow. In the dunk contest, he wasn't bad, don't get me wrong. He had that one dunk where he essentially posed in mid air, it was insane to watch. But again, a better in-game dunker than a dunk contest dunker. It's not that he ruined it in terms of LeBron because he didn't compete. No. It still could be that we have stars coming in and wanting to compete and win. It's not that they're scared to get embarrassed in my estimation, my humble opinion. It's not that they're scared to get, to get outed. No, it's not. If I do quality stuff, and I don't get rewarded for it. It's different if I just get beat outright. Okay, fine. But it's different if I do quality dunks and I'm not getting rewarded by the judging and they're skewing their judging or making a situation where they're judging in, in favor of one person, objective, though they're not doing anything nearly as impressive as me. And then I lose because of that? No, that's ridiculous. Why would I want to spend my time doing that? 
Why would I? It's no consequence to put on for an event that is already skewed and messed up and corrupt by how they're scoring the dunks. Makes no sense at all. It's ridiculous. That's why. That's the real problem. If judging was accurate and you had Aaron Gordon winning the first the, that dunk contest against Zach Levine, or Aaron Gordon, Aaron Gordon winning the dunk contest when he faced off against Derrick Jones Jr. Or, like in this situation, have people like Jalen Brown, no matter what their status is, all-star or not, get out because their dunks suck. Okay, boom. Now we got some continuity. We have some stability in how we're gauging and judging these dunks in this event as a whole. Hence, I know what I need to do. I get the standard. Right now, there is no standard. Standards change every single year. But it's because of stinking Dwayne Wade and the rest of that panel who were doing terrible judging on those dunks in the final round. Whether it's Zach Levine getting a win over Aaron Gordon, though none of Aaron Gordon's, none of Zach Levine's dunks topped what should have been the definitive dunk in that final round to win it that Aaron Gordon did. It's not that something is a 50 or not. It's not that something is comparable or not. It's the fact that when it comes to judging, there needs to be a standard of once we get into these later rounds, you got to top the other man in order to be able to beat him or do something on par to get the same score as him. Even if it's a little bit under, it doesn't change the fact that it's got to be above what the other person did or on par at minimum. And if it's not, you don't get the score. Hence, creativity over athleticism. Spontaneity and something, oh my goodness, over just, oh my gosh, look at how he jumped. And hence, legitimate dunking prowess over just name status. That's what messed up this dunk contest. That's what's messed up past dunk contests. That's why... The good dunkers that should move on don't move on. Since the rest of the contest sucks, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous and terrible. In part because people and honest, don't know what they're seeing amongst the judges. They don't know what they're seeing. Have legends, absolutely. No problem there. I don't know what happened between having legends from the 2000s up until like what 2012, 2013, we'll go as far as the Aaron Gordon Duck Contest 2016 to now. But this is this is abysmal. It's terrible. They don't know what they're seeing. Hence, they can't put it into proper context. No, we shouldn't get international duckers coming in to the actual dunk contest because then nobody would want to see NBA players ever. I don't know why that's a, it's an idiotic thing that Stephen A's been saying. It quick, briefly derailing. Idiotic thing that Stevie Day's been saying about mixing the contest and making it so that we have international players or international dunkers coming in to dunk. No, you do that, we'll never want to see a dunk contest again from NBA players on, from LeBron or Ja, anybody, because they won't be able to compete at all. It'll be a whole cycle of we're just outclassed to no end. Because y'all play for a living, we dunk for a living. We can do things and know things you just can't do. Even with all your athleticism. You will never win. There will never be an NBA player that wins if we go with that idiotic idea that Stephen A keeps trying to push. You, no NBA player can compete with them. So we'll never want to see NBA players dunk. We'll never have another star in the dunk contest again. Because this is supposed to be about NBA talent. Not about outside sources coming in. It's not. No. It is not that. It's not supposed to be like that. Braun didn't ruin the dunk contest just because he didn't compete. Judging ruined the dunk contest. That's the biggest thing. Judging ruined the dunk contest. Judge it right and the right people win. We'll probably have people coming in. But it makes no sense to somebody like Zion or Ja 
who want to come on Anthony Edwards, who want to come in and dunk after seeing what Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine did, not because they, oh my gosh, they're too shocked by what they can actually do. The bar's been set too high. No, it hasn't. That was the greatest dunk contest. So Zach Levine, or just like people say Vince Carter had the greatest dunk contest at that point in time when he competed in 2000. It's not that the bar is set too high. It's that if I can reach it and it won't be enough. Because the actual greatest person to dunk in the dunk contest, Aaron Gordon, lost it every time. He was objectively better than every other person. Lost it every time he competed, but was objectively better. That's why he just said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. There's no way. No way in the world that we should be saying Aaron Gordon is not a dunk contest champion. Yet, he has more perfect scores than anybody else in dunk contest history. Even more than the actual winner, Zach Levine. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Dwayne Wade messed it up. Candace Parker messed it up. Judging for the past five or so years has messed it up. Dominique in this dunk contest messed it up. Judging has messed up the dunk contest. And when it comes to All-Star Weekend, the game, no, no players are, are incentivized to compete. Question is why? And the real reason being, it most likely, isn't just because they just want to get paid for it. Or that, okay, they just want to relax and take it off and don't want to get injured. Could it be that maybe the inability to trash talk and the inability to really express yourself and get in people's faces, be like about it about it, may have skewed the ability of the players to want to be at, at, be able to compete in what should be the greatest pickup game in the world? Could it be? It could be. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it could be. Could it also be that we as fans have continually said so much? Nothing matters up until the postseason. Nothing matters up until the finals. No regular season event. No in the middle of the road type games. No drama. None of that matters up until the end of the season. And since we kept perpetuating that so much, players just said, okay, so why should I try? No defense necessary because we don't care because y'all don't care about anything else except for the postseason? That could that be? I'm not saying it is. I'm saying could it be? Again, what was it, 2020? We had legitimately competitive game. It was LeBron, I believe, hit the game winner to win in Cleveland. Impressive. We had legitimately competitive stuff going on. Yes, it was high-scoring game, sure. We're not saying, okay, just compete, compete all night long. But we are saying that around that third or fourth quarter, stuff will start picking up. Defense start getting more tight. People will start getting in people's faces even more. The competitive fire will start lighting up. Now, it doesn't happen. And it's because, to an extent, have we muddied when competitiveness needs to actually be taken seriously? Have we gone too far in saying nothing else matters? That could be the reason why. And if it is, well then boom. Now we see why we are where we are. With players and fans not wanting to really give a hoop. Care. Because what is there to care for? What is there to care for? Switching gears from the world of the NBA into the world of boxing, we have to cover Francis Ngannou versus Anthony Joshua happening on March 8th. Who, in fact, is going to win as we break down this fight? And since we're talking about boxing, we have to step into the ring. That's right. Ring the bell. Let's get it started. Round one of the second show going underway. Talking about what each needs to do in order to win to be the number one contender. Mind you, that's what's on the line. That's what's at stake. Whoever wins this fight will be the number one contender, at least from my understanding, for the winner of Usyk versus Fury for the Undisputed Heavyweight Championship. So, oh, there's a lot on the line for this fight. Who's going to win? Well, when it comes to Anthony Joshua, he is favored. Understandably so. He's been in the ring with Usyk. He's been in the ring with Pooler. He's been in the ring with Dillian White, most of the bigger names of the division, has been in the ring with Klitschko. He's 
lost and came back versus Ruiz. He's had the experience. He's had ups and downs. He's been through the highs and lows. And he has come out now revamped, revitalized, liking his win against Otto Wileen. He looks like the old AJ. He looks like the AJ that was a multi-time champion. He looks like the AJ that was running the heavyweight division now. And he looks refreshed and renewed. So with this Anthony Joshua now being in play, what is it that he needs to do against Francis Ngannou in order to secure the victory and get his shot at undisputed and his, being, and his shot as the world champion once again? Well, he has to utilize his fundamentals to the fullest of his extent. Mind you, his technical ability and his fundamental understanding of boxing is one of the best well-rounded arsenals in the division of heavyweights. It's, it's for, that's for a fact. Not just because of technique. Because again, there are people better. Usyk, better technical boxer. Understandable. But in terms of both footwork, speed, fundamental soundness and jabs and sharpness and punches, on top of power, he's the most well-rounded fighter in the entirety of the division. Fury has footwork or had footwork. Maybe that footwork has gone away. Footwork length and size. And have respectable power, but not the best power in the division. Also, best footwork and fundamental boxing in the entirety of the division. Best technical boxer in the division heavyweights. But isn't the most powerful. Hence, lacks in that department. Anthony Joshua is at the tops in terms of being a technical boxer. At the tops in terms of understanding the fundamentals of the sport. And has arguably, not arguably, not, not arguably, undebatably, the second best powerful punch in the division outside of Deontay Wilder. So he is all around the most well-rounded boxer in the division of heavyweights, in my estimation. Because from an outside-looking-in standpoint, there's nothing that he lacks. He's tall. He's big. He can move. He can control the ring. Got a phenomenal jab. Has power, legitimate power. Can muscle you out the way. Has solid defense. And he can go for 12 rounds. Doesn't get tired when he does get later into fights. And has shown that he can come and dig from the bottom of the barrel to get new wells of strength and come back. Like he did against Klitschko. So this is what we're saying about the most well-rounded boxer. That's Anthony Joshua. I've said that for years about AJ. He just has to use that against Fury. Or against Usyk, excuse me. But how does he implement that? Because again, we saw a better boxer in Tyson Fury in terms of relative to the skill set of Francis Ngannou leagues better. Not be able to utilize his boxing ability to the fullest extent. Not being able to control the fight strictly by boxing. It was still close in my opinion. He lost the fight. With Anthony Joshua, he's got to be able to make Francis Ngannou respect him. Yes, he can box around Francis. Understand him. He's a league's better boxer. Understands the fundamentals of not just the sport, but how to use the ring to his advantage better than Ngannou can. Understand him. Though Ngannou was impressive, he's got to be able to make Francis Ngannou respect him. Because if he doesn't, that boxing ability is going to go out the window. The main reason why we saw Francis Ngannou get, get, not only get into the ring, but knocked down Tyson Fury and arguably beat him for 12 rounds in terms of in the, at the end of the fight. It was because of the fact that he didn't respect Tyson Fury and his power. He didn't respect what he was coming back at him. Hence, he could opt to walk through to land the punches that he wanted. Though he was, again, still defensively as sound as he could be. But some of the biggest punches that he was able to land was because of the fact that he just moved forward and just tanked anything that Fury threw his way. Made Tyson Fury have to fight not just to box, but to survive. Because not just because of the knockdown and the legitimate threat of the power, but also I can't do anything to hurt this man. Even an elbow can't do anything to this brother. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to get around this obstacle? And really, truly control the fight when everything I do, he doesn't care about. This isn't Derek Chisora. This isn't Dillian White. Different beast entirely. Again, right now, we have to say Francis Ngannou is one of the best heavyweights in the world. Because of what he did to, to Tyson Fury. That's objectively true. 
we need to see if Anthony Joshua can get his respect on Francis Ngannou and stop that constant forward pressure. Because what we do know, AJ cannot get on the inside with Francis Ngannou. He cannot get into a firefight with this man. Though we know he could win it, absolutely. But the risk of him getting knocked out is so apparently there because of the track record of his chin. He's never had a quality chin. He's got heart. He'll keep getting up. The problem is him getting hit and knocked down is very susceptible. He's, he's privy to getting stunned. He's privy to getting hurt against legitimate power. He is, there, he is, he is at a high risk or high potential of getting stopped or getting put in some serious trouble if he gets caught right clean or even just willy-nilly, even just on an accidental shot. He is, of all the talent that he has, He's got the weakest chin in the division amongst the elite heavyweights. And amongst Fury, Usyk, AJ, and Ngannou, even Wilder. He's got the weakest of all of them. He can't take punches like you would want somebody of his caliber to do. And it's not a knock where it is a knock, but not in a detrimental sense. It's just a fact and matter. It just is what it is. That's the circumstance that he's, that he's in. He can't get caught by Francis Ngannou. Because if he does, he will go to sleep. If he gets caught flush like Ngannou caught, like Ngannou caught Tyson Fury, if he catches him with a counter like he caught Fury with a counter, it, that could spell nasty disaster for AJ. So he's got to get Ngannou to respect him so that he can initiate that inside pressure type style of boxing. He can't let that happen. Because if he does, it's going to be, I don't know what he'll be able to do. He's got granite. He can fight on the inside. Don't get it twisted. Yes, he can. But against a grappler like that, who is able to fight better on the inside than Fury. Against a bigger opponent in Tyson Fury. And out-muscle him. Now you're at both a knockout potential detriment and from a physically strength standpoint, Though that is what you are in terms of one of your best attributes is being strong, being sturdy, being built like an Adonis. You could get out-muscled when you go up against Francis Ngannou. You could get outworked and and you could get drained if you try to fight on the inside with Francis Ngannou. Muscled around to wherever he wants you to be. That is why being on the outside is so apparent and being able to box is so vital for AJ in this fight. Because yes we know he can fight and box. And got the power to potentially hurt him. And potentially knock out Francis Ngannou. Yes he does. He does. Because what we have to say. Ngannou has not faced somebody. Of this technically. Sound. With as much power as AJ. He hasn't faced somebody. With that much power. Alongside great technique. He hasn't. He's faced off against Roden Strike. He faced off against Overing. Overing. He faced off against uh, 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 Miocic, I believe. Stephen Miocic. If I'm saying the name right. He's been heavyweight champion. He's been all around the world. He faced off against these major type names. I believe he faced off against Derek Lewis, if I'm not mistaken as well. He has faced off against some heavy hitters. But he hasn't faced off against a heavy hitter that has great technique. He just hasn't. Tyson Fury is a great technical puncher. Was the best puncher he ever faced. But technique-wise, or just power-wise, he wasn't there. He was he, he, he wasn't there. He walked through them like a like a day in the park. Now going up against AJ, this is a fighter who can legitimately crack while having the technique and speed to be of legitimate danger. That is what AJ brings to the table against Francis Ngannou. That could be Francis Ngannou's biggest detriment. Because mind you, when Francis Ngannou faced off against AJ, still, he was getting caught with a lot of jabs and straights. The guard, one, two, through his guard, was working. Fury's one, two, through Francis Ngannou's guard was connecting. It wasn't hurting, but it was connecting. It was getting through. It was landing, though being ineffective. There was just no pop behind it, especially when Fury got afraid of Ngannou's power. Then he really started biting off the pop of his punches and started just scoring shots. But he came out swinging in that first 
was first round or two and was aggressive like he said he would be and was really putting his all into them punches. And he didn't do anything. Now, Ngannou's facing the most dangerous punch he's ever gone up against in Anthony Joshua. And since that's the case, AJ's got to use that power to make Francis respect what he brings to the table. Because if you walk in scared, you're not going to be able to win. You're just not going to be able to win. You've got to walk in understanding that you are the predator, not the prey in this fight. Though we know what Francis, the predator in Ghana, brings to the table. You've got to walk in saying, I am the most dangerous puncher in the drink. Or maybe the second most powerful, but I'm the strongest brother that he has ever faced. Alongside the best technical puncher with power that he's ever been in the ring with. If I connect with you, it's going to be pinpoint and sound. You need to be afraid of me, not the other way around. That's the mentality he's got to have. Because that's the legitimate arsenal that he has at, at his disposal. He is a great combination puncher. He is somebody that, if need be, can't fight on the inside. He's got speed. He's got a phenomenal jab. He's got power. He's got a gas tank. He's smart. He's, he seemingly has gotten all of the confidence in old ways of if I'm touching you, now I'm going to try to hurt you. The, the seek and destroy type AJ is back. Take that same mentality and tune it a little bit to where you're still trying to seek and destroy, but you're trying to destroy from the outside. Now we got something. Now you can win. And you can potentially knock him out, if not just win definitively in all 12 rounds. But if you're on the side of Francis Ngannou, while you don't have the most technical abilities, though you impressed us all, and we now see it's enough to compete on the world level, your simplistic style of boxing, not derogatorily simplistic, but in terms of you just, you stick strictly to the fundamental aspect of boxing. That can win you today. It can. Because if I remember correctly, I believe your reach is longer than Anthony Joshua. Only it, it wasn't even, it wasn't dwarfed by Tyson Fury. It was very comparable. Incredibly comparable. Insane how much of a gen genetic freak you are. With that, on top of the better learned skills of boxing and fundamentals that you have no doubtably learned in your training camp prepping for this fight while you now and with you being in the sport longer, this could spell an even better boxer, even more poised killer in Francis Ngannou. That AJ, even with him being able to now see exactly what Francis Ngannou can bring to the table, he still may not be ready for what's getting ready to come back at him. With the new and improved in Ghana. Because what you saw was him at the beginning of his development. Now further further along, more developed in an incubator. Within the ethos of boxing, Francis Ngannou could come out as a completely different beast. Of a boxer. Of a fighter. Even better than what we saw. We could be saying that if that Francis Ngannou went up against, we, we could be saying, excuse me, that this Francis Ngannou, if he had went up against that Tyson Fury, he would have knocked him out. We could very well be saying that in terms of the upgrade and skill level that we could potentially see right before our eyes. Oh, it's entirely possible. Yes, it is. It's entirely possible that we could see that. And since we have that as a potential, if Ngannou comes in and improves his ability to box, better utilizes his jab, is more deliberate in terms of throwing offense rather than, like he did in the later rounds, lulling a little bit, keeping the rounds close by controlling your output, which controlled your stamina, which was phenomenal, which I loved it. We, we had seen most fighters transitioning from the UFC to boxing gas out from McGregor Tyrone Woodley, Ben Askren. The only person that was actually successful was Anderson Silva. But we had seen fighters gas and go to pot stamina-wise when they got into longer fights such as boxing, 10-12 round, round affairs. 
And God didn't have that problem. Looked like he could have gone for 15. Which was phenomenal. Since we know that he has that gas tank at his disposal, if he lets it go a little bit, throw some more, give some more offense up, really imposes power in outright dominating presence by upping the ante in terms of, in terms of no longer you a counterpuncher now, you're coming forward being the aggressor. Yes, he was the aggressor in terms of um, against Ty Tyson Fury. But I'm talking about, okay, now I can really come out and really let my offense go for more than just a couple of seconds at a time, if that makes sense. We see that. My goodness, we could see him knock out Anthony Joshua because he's got the power to do it. We know he's got the power to do it. He knocked down a brother that, again, who had, that took shots from Deontay Wilder in three fights and didn't get knocked out. He knocked him down. Has, who has taken a bunch of solid punches and has a phenomenal chin, as we attest to and understand. And he knocked him down on a counter that didn't even look as powerful as we know Engano can throw. And he was able to he was able to, to hurt him and make him back up. We didn't even see him back up versus Wilder. But we saw him back up against Francis Ngano. Dude, there's something there in terms of the this world dominating like power that Ngano has at his disposal. If he can make AJ fear him, he's got this fight in the bag. If he can get AJ out of the renovated AJ that we see now, the renewed AJ, and revert him into the AJ of old, or excuse me, the AJ that was old in terms of the AJ that came back against Ruiz, the AJ that faced off against Franklin, the AJ that was timid, the AJ that wasn't willing to throw a bunch of punches, the AJ that was scared to get caught. You revert him back to that, you got this fight in the bag. Absolutely. You have this fight in the bag. You take it to him. You make it so that he is afraid to throw. You land punches and you keep the pressure on. You go to the body. Mix up your attack. Utilize the more sound fundamental aspects that you learned in training camp. And make it so that AJ has to adapt to you rather than you adapting to him. And you have yourself a legitimate fight. And you have yourself a situation where we could see this in the bag for Francis Ngano. Because if this is the biggest thing that this fight comes down to, and I said this in the past, but applies even more now, beyond just the power and technique that both of these people bring to the table, beyond just the outright mega event and what's at stake and what you're fighting for, beyond all that, this fight comes down to one thing, and it's confidence. As I said before, the confidence of AJ and the confidence of Ngannou is what's going to be the tell, the tell, tell sign as to what this fight's going to be. Because if we see that Ngannou again with that conqueror's hockey type confidence, that outright ability to control and change a room wherever he walks in, the overwhelming and dominating presence that he brings into the ring. Of I am going to win and I'm going to dominate. That going up against now the rejuvenated confidence that we see AJ have at this stage in his career. What will win? Whose will will win? It comes down to will. And if AJ's will breaks, this fight's over. That's the biggest thing. Yes, this is the most dangerous puncher that AJ that Ngannou's ever faced. Yes, this this should be. A win for AJ. But if AJ's confidence breaks. Just after it got rebuilt. It's done. It's over. He can't win. In my estimation. He can't win. He cannot win. He's got all the ability to win. He can he can lull. Ngano into counter punch. He can lull Ngano into a counter. And catch him clean. He can hurt Ngano. He can outbox Ngano. He can do all these things to Francis Ngannou. Yes, he can. But the problem is, does he have the confidence to commit to it? When we, well, like I said, when he faced off against 
all the while. And I was so happy that he got his confidence back. Seemingly. The issue was that I said, can it be sustained? If it cannot be sustained, then this is all just, a, it's, it's all hype. If he can't keep this same level of confidence that he got against Arduarlene in this fight and for the rest of his career, done. There's no way. It's impossible for him to continue boxing at a high level because he won't have the same ability at his disposal because he won't be confident in his own ability. Unlike with Ngannou, who right now, despite the wins and losses in the UFC and in boxing, Hasn't changed the fact that he still walks out the ring seeming like he won the fight. The presence that he brings to the table is so much encompassing that it can shatter the will of anybody that steps in front of him. It's just the truth of who he is. It's what he is as, as a fighter. As a, regardless of what sport, that's what you are as a fighter. That's what he is as a fighter. He's got that different level of confidence and outright determination that AJ just got back to. But even him at this renovated state isn't at the same level as we see in Ghana at right now. It's just not the same. We talk about intangibles in boxing all the time. And normally we keep it to strictly the talent level on display. But there's a reason why it is legitimate that boxing is, was it? 80% mental, 20% physical, or 90% mental, 10% physical. It's because how up here is what matters to what you're able to do with this. The very fist that you wield can't operate without you thinking and making them operate. And if you don't have the confidence that they can operate to their fullest capacity, you can't use them to the fullest capacity. That 10% is 100% of your body. But that 90% controls how much of that 10% can actually be used. That's why it's so overwhelming. You can have all the physical traits in the world. But if you don't have the mental capacity and the mental fortitude to utilize those traits to the fullest of their extent. In the vein of I'm going to win. You will not win. The mental game controls the fight. It just does. The ability to will yourself forward requires the mind. The ability to adapt requires the mind. The ability to react requires the mind. Everything revolves around the mind. The 10% is just the tool. The body is the tool. The mind is the operator. If a swordsman doesn't learn how to use a sword, that sword just becomes a, a, a trinket. A dangerous paperweight. A dangerous plaque on the wall. But if they know how to use it, that sword now becomes a weapon. Every weapon isn't a weapon in the hands of everybody. And every fighting style isn't necessarily a quality fighting style in the fighting style of everybody. Because everybody's got their own fighting style, yes. But if you can't commit to it fully, because your mental state isn't where it needs to be, it becomes useless. You have to have the outright confidence in what you're doing and sustain it the entire time, regardless of the obstacle. There's a reason why Mickey Ward's being, even though technically he wasn't as great of a boxer, the heart and mental fortitude this brother had was so great. Mickey Ward, Arturo Gotti, Ali, Frazier, we can keep going down the list of heart-driven fighters. Roberto Duran, Salvador Sanchez, all of these greats that were just so incredibly tough mentally. They would not stop. Jack Dempsey, Jake LaMotta, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, all of these people just would not stop. When, the, when stuff got hot, nor never lost the confidence that they had in themselves. Hence, opened up 100% of what their body could do. Because they were able and willing to use everything possible. Because I know if I go full force, I'm going to win.
That's with the confidence that they had. That's the mental game that they played. And they always wanted within themselves. Where is AJ in terms of that mental game, that mental fight? We saw where he got back to. Can he sustain it? If he can't sustain it, he's going to lose. But if he can sustain it, he can win. Now again, anything can happen. He could, just, he could, be, he could be fighting great and then get caught once clean and just knocked out outright. We get that that can happen. But we're talking about if he loses in the fashion of he lost his confidence, he's shot and done. Maybe for the, for the rest of his boxing career in terms of being a competitive elite fighter. Because then, brother, now you're the one that lost of, the, of all the boxers. You're the one of the elite that has a one and over record against this guy. Against Francis Ngannou. Against a, a boxer who just got into the sport. That's going to be held over. And he may never recover from that mentally. But if he doesn't sustain the ability to be mentally fortified when he gets into this fight with Francis Ngannou, to utilize his jab, to be able to make sure that he have outright confidence in his power, to use combination punching, to make use his footwork to confuse Francis Ngannou, to make Francis Ngannou have to adapt to what he's doing rather than having to adapt to what Francis Ngannou is doing. And if he can get Ngannou to respect him, all of those things, he can win the fight. Absolutely. He can knock him out. He can knock him out. This is a legitimate opportunity for him to knock out Francis Ngannou if he catches him clean with the counter. Flush with the straight right. Or hook. Or even an uppercut on the inside if he does choose to end fight with Francis Ngannou. The uppercut is dangerous. It's one of the best uppercuts in the world, in my estimation. Because the ferocity, angle, and the outright speed at which that thing can come up and the positioning, he always gets uh, he always gets the into position to throw it. It's always dangerous when you're in the clinch with him. But again, I don't think he should be in the clinch with Francis Gallo. That's what we already covered that. Point being, he has a bunch of avenues to win. He has a bunch of ways that he can make this fight go his way. He should be the better boxer. And in my opinion, for my prediction, he should be the man to win in this fight. He should be the man to win and beat Francis Ngannou. He should be able to do it. And he should be able to do it in better fashion than what we saw Tyson Fury do. Because he's been more active, more committed in the ring, more committed outside the ring than what we've seen Tyson Fury. He is, by all accounts, and in my prediction, going to win this fight. Probably in a 12-round decision. If not, and I'll be shocked if it does happen, but not surprised, but shocked. Could knock him out late in the fight. Could knock him out in round 10. Potentially round 9. He's got enough power to do it in 5. Both of them do. But I think he's going to win. But he is in control of that. Because, again, just like with Tyson Fury, Everything is matched up for Ngannou to lose against AJ. Everything is built for Ngannou to lose versus Anthony Joshua. Joshua has every single advantage you would want in a boxer against an opponent outside of maybe reach. Yes, he's just as big as you. Yes, he's got power. But you are still the most dangerous puncher that he has ever faced. He's never faced somebody of your technical and power combined skill before. It's never been put together and melded like it is with AJ. Coupled with everything else he has at his disposal as a fighter. He should be able to win. But it's on him. Because if he folds mentally. As it comes to the pressure. Not just of the fighting style of Ngannou. But of the outright presence of Ingan and it's, his confidence wavers even in the slightest the fight's over it's done he won't be able to win he won't be able to do it because even with all the intangible and tangible ability that he'll have at his disposal in his right hand in his left hook in his uppercut in his jab 
He won't use it. He will not pull the trigger. He will get, he'll freeze up to some degree. He won't let it go fully. He won't fully delve into whatever punch he's throwing. He will mitigate his own power because of the threat of what's coming back at him if his confidence gets lost in this fight. If that happens, fight's done. If it doesn't, he should win. But again, we just have to wait and see. And I can't wait to see that fight. Absolutely. But with that being said, this has been another episode of The World Report with me, Jean-Luc Welch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. Again, please leave a like on the video, comment your thoughts and opinions, subscribe to the channel, share the show with everybody that you know so we can keep on building up this community together. I've been Jean-Luc Welch. Y'all have been absolutely wonderful. And we will see you all next time. Next episode, peace and love. We are out of here.